I want to tell a story about an immigrant family. Can you see that okay? Too, too dark? No, it's good. No, it's okay. Uh, so an immigrant family, uh, a young family that came to the United States uh, as immigrants in 1898 um, with three young kids in tow, um, the youngest being about five months when they came across the Atlantic in December. Who comes across the Atlantic in December? Uh, this immigrant family uh, coming from uh, this country of the Netherlands uh, makes their way to a small little frontier town called Orange City, Iowa. Uh, and as they arrived in Orange City, Iowa in 1898, uh, the buzz was still rumbling through the newspapers that just a few weeks before, the esteemed Dr. Abraham Piper, the great Dutch statesman, Dutch theologian, uh, the polymath of, of, kind of Dutch theology, who had been in the United States uh, at Princeton giving what is now the Stone Lectures uh, and now the famous book of Piper's uh, Calvinism Lectures. This Dr. Abraham Piper made his way by train to Warren City, Iowa, uh, of all places. Uh, and so as this immigrant family coming from the Netherlands, just passing uh, Abraham Kuyper. And again, in the newspapers, still weeks, uh, just three, four weeks afterwards, uh, after he had left, still talking about the great Abraham Kuyper and the Dutch reformed legacy uh, that he uh, was, was bringing and talking about in the United States. Uh, the pastor that this young family uh, was going to sit underneath uh, was trained uh, by Gerhardus Voss, who uh, was a uh, biblical theologian uh, here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, at Calvin Seminary. Uh, so that pastor soon left, and the next pastor, uh, his name was Idzard Vindelin. Um, hey. uh, we have Vindelin here? We have Vindelin? Yes, yes. From the door, from the door. Uh, well, uh, there you go. Uh, is that door, Calvin's door named after Idzard Vindelin? I believe it is. Oh, there you go. <laughs> uh, so Idzard Vindelin uh, also had come from the Netherlands, he studied under uh, a man by the name of Herman Bavink, um, a contemporary of Abraham Kuyper, and was deeply influenced by Bavink's uh, theology, uh, probably even more so than Kuyper's theology. Uh, Bavink was a bit more arenic, a bit more peace-seeking, uh, a bit less polemic, polemical uh, than, than Kuyper. Uh, so this young family who had recently come to the United States, uh, walking into this kind of buzz of Hyperionism in this distant city of Orange City, uh, being under the preaching of someone deeply influenced by Herman Bobby. Uh, and this young family came to grow. Uh, they have here, what, how many kids? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Uh, they'll eventually add two more. Uh, at, point, at this point, they don't speak any English. Uh, they are trying to navigate this new world in, uh, in Dutch. Uh, under the influence of Pastor Vindelen, this particular Reformed tradition, not just a generic Reformed tradition, but a particular Reformed tradition that they had inherited from the Netherlands and come over to this one particular church, or one particular city, being under the influence of kind of Kuyper, Kuyper's thinking and Bobbing's thinking, uh, this particular community, one well, of the first things they did is establish a Christian school. Uh, and so this is a picture, probably 1905, 1906. The school opened in 1904 as a one-level building, so this is the second story. And after one year, they built the second story because there's so many kids. So somewhere in here, I'm not sure where, some of these kids are in that uh, picture. Uh, but the opening of the school was not easy. Uh, there was a massive debate, even in Orange City, Iowa, about the establishment of a Christian school. Um, articles are written back and forth in the press. Pulpits, uh, pastors would get in the pulpit and use the sermons to argue back and forth with other churches in the community whether or not they should start this school because there are already just fine schools in Orange City, Iowa. Uh, 
when this was opens, uh, the papers accused the school of being un-American, unpatriotic. Um, how dare they start a Christian school in Orange City, Iowa? It was un-American. Um, started in 1904, I believe it was in 1907, that unsolved mystery, still to this day, uh, someone tried to burn this school to the ground. Um, someone cut the lock uh, to the school, uh, stacked, had a whole bunch of stacked um, old shingles in the basement of this building, and tried to light it on fire. The fire just kind of smoldered out. Um, never was it found out who tried to burn this building down. Read, folks, and most people think it was actually uh, attempted arson. Um, to burn down this un-American school. Uh, why do I start with this story? Uh, I start with this story for a number of reasons. One, this is my family. Uh, so this is my, this is my great-great-grandpa. That's my great-grandpa. Um, and so this is my story. This is my family's story. Uh, so I start with that because I think we sometimes think about this reformed perspective or just even Christianity, just in general terms, as if like it's universal. It's not universal. This is a particular story about a particular reformed tradition. It's not the entirety of the reformed tradition. Um, but it's owning my story, which actually comes from a Dutch reformed tradition. Uh, a Dutch reformed tradition that is influenced by folks like John Calvin, but also people like Abraham Kuyper and people like Kermit Bobbick. Um, and these folks inherited that particular tradition. They carried it with them from one place to a new place, and then they had to figure out what this particular tradition looked like in their particular context of Orange City, Iowa, which led them to oops, a particular action, which for them, uh, their kind of reformed thinking led them to uh, start a Christian school. There's a reformed church, literally less probably a mile from down the road, had a reformed tradition that they tried to live out in their reformed context that led them to a different reformed action, which was to oppose this Christian school. So I share that story and say, look, when we talk about is reform still relevant, it's not like this, there's this universal answer. There's reformed traditions, plural, that get put into a particular context and that's going to lead us to particular actions. And I think we're in the danger sometimes of universalizing our own experience to make it the assumption that it's everyone else's experience. But when we get concrete with how we live out our faith, and particularly a Reformed perspective, it leads us to certain actions. And then I think, to no surprise, it leads to like potential pushback. Like not everyone's going to like how we live out our faith. Uh, they got pushback. Uh, someone tried to burn their school down because they tried to live out a particular tradition in a particular context. Um, if you have your handout, uh, there's a few things. And so here's lessons from an immigrant family. Natalie, one of your jobs is to make sure I don't just ramble on and some stories. Natalie knows that uh, sometimes we don't get very far in our class because uh, we just get untangled. Um, and so. I should also say, feel free to interrupt me and ask questions along the way. Like, there will be questions at the end, but feel free to interrupt with other questions as well. Uh, so, one, uh, so one lesson I have from this immigrant story is that we should talk about particular traditions in particular contexts that lead us to particular actions. Uh, and I think that's really important uh, because the next point is this. When we talk about the Reformed tradition, it has always been a contextualized tradition. So we might go back to John Calvin. Um, my background learning theology was always, we just talk about like theology or Calvin's theology. But I would never talk about it as like, here's a French immigrant theologian. Like I... And I'm learning along the way, we need to contextualize our theology. My tendency is often to think, well, here's theology, and it comes from Calvin, and it comes from Kuiper, but I never modify it to say, here's a French refugee 
doing theology in Geneva. Or here's Kuiper at the turn of the 20th century in a Dutch context where the economy's falling apart and the rise of modernism. And I just call it theology. But then when I pick up, uh, I don't know, Justo Gonzalez, uh, but also like I qualify and say, here's a South American theologian. Like, why do I make that switch? That I went from, I'm doing theology, and I'm doing reformed theology, just like, this is what it is, to now I read Huso Gonzalez, and now I say, well, he's a South American theologian. And I might like what he says, but I modified it. Or I read Emmanuel Cadegongale, and I say, here's a uh, East African theologian. Why do I modify his theology, but I just talk about my theology? So I start with the story to say, look, as, I love this tradition. I think it's a fantastic tradition. But I need to modify it. This is a tradition that's come to me through a Dutch, um, Dutch context. And then it gets translated into an American context. I'm trying to sort that out. That's not to say it's bad. It's simply to say it has a particular context. It's been contextualized in a particular way. And actually, I think that actually adds to the tradition, doesn't take away from the tradition. Uh, because also, like, it speaks to things. I don't know if any of you, I should ask, uh, if you ever read Institutes, uh, Calvin's Institutes, uh, which is, Calvin gets a bad rap. Uh, you should go read Calvin's Institutes. It's rich, it's so good. It gets even better if you say, who's he writing to? He's writing to a whole bunch of refugees and immigrants. And, like, they're trying to live out their faith on the run. Um, and the, 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 the powers that be are trying to put down these kind of these rebellious Christians, these rebellious Protestants. You contextualize it, and all of a sudden you read it, and it's like, whoa, this is not just abstract thinking. He's actually trying to speak to a particular context. I think that makes it so much better. So I don't know where I am in my handout. Uh, point B, that's uh, along those lines. Uh, it's always contextualized. Uh, point C. Uh, is this if, 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 if that's the case if all theology is always contextualized it just opens the door to say we should learn from other traditions then. Um, other reformed traditions so reformed kind of, kind of following Calvin's thinking kind of spreads out some of it goes to the UK goes to England uh, and kind of English Puritanism uh, Scottish Presbyterianism uh, and the Dutch, the French uh, from there goes into South America, Asia, United States. Like, it's always being contextualized. That should be an open door then to say, I should read from other, even Reformed traditions. Like, sweet, I, this is what I inherited, a Dutch Reformed tradition. But I probably should read some English Puritanism. How do they seek out to live out their Reformedness? Uh, I should read some South American Reformed theologians. How do they seek to live out their Reformedness? But then I should take it one step further and say, if reform is always contextualized, so is all Christian theology. So I should learn from other Christian traditions. Um, so there's a term that we sometimes use in reform theology called perspectivalism, uh, which means simply means that we all have a perspective, uh, which I think should be an open door to recognize, well, if I see the faith from one perspective, doesn't make a fair assumption that someone else can see the faith from a different perspective. And I actually be enriched if I listened and saw the world from their perspective. Um, so again, it's not to diminish this story. It's actually to enrich the story. Uh, there's an old Christian Forum banner article in the 1980s. Uh, some of you might remember it. It had like, virtue and burden of wooden shoes. Um, should we get rid of the statues of the tradition? I'm kind of poor on that. Like... Kind of, like, you should burn it if it's if that's the only thing we think that reform means. But I think we should also celebrate a particular tradition, if that's our tradition. I recognize that not everyone's coming from that tradition. Uh, that's the tradition I'm going to speak out. Any questions on that? Sorry. Natalie knows I can talk about... Uh, one of the things that she can do to get me sidetracked in class is just like, tell me about your family's genealogy stuff you're doing in like, classes over there. Uh, One more thing on this. Uh, talk about the goodness of this. 
they're immigrants from the United States. I think that's particular. What this also does is recognize its weaknesses. Um, let me fast forward the story. This family came together as immigrants. Um, they eventually moved from Iowa to Minnesota. They go bankrupt in Minnesota, they lose everything. Uh, they moved to Grand Rapids. That's why the band works around Grand Rapids. Uh, this guy grows up in Grand Rapids. My great grandpa. He lives just a couple miles, or lives a couple miles from here. Um, he got into real estate. His vocation was in real estate. He began calling folks up in Grand Rapids, saying, this is the 1950s. I think you should move. African Americans are moving to town. You should leave. You can sell you this property out of town. <coughs> tell that part of the story. Just an Edmondson talk about this too, right? Like, tell. We shouldn't be scared of the truth. This immigrant family was once immigrants. They were welcomed into this country. And then a generation later, they're excluding that. Wait a minute. This tradition has some problems. Uh, so I think we need to name that as well. All right. Any questions here before I go on? All right. Uh, we've been talking about this word reforms. Uh, what does it mean? Uh, what comes to mind? Natalie, do you have sticky notes? Um, I'll take some of those. Uh, we can both pass those out. Uh, if you'd like to help some of that too, yeah. Uh, let's take uh, sticky notes, pass one down. Sometimes I give my students an assignment, which is to summarize the gospel in like seven words. Um, which is a really fun assignment, actually. We're going to narrow that down even and say, what, is it, what does it mean to be reformed in five words or less? So you might even just write down one word. What does it mean to you as you think about being reformed? And whether you might not even be reformed, but you think about the reform tradition. What does it mean to be reformed? What comes to mind? We need more. There's someone. Oh, sorry. Uh, there might be someone. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know what, the, what, what we're talking about. <laughs> uh, that was a student's uh, creation. Oh, was it? Yeah. Told him it's my favorite show. I do not endorse it. It's <laughs> my favorite show. No, Has any student threatened to rip it in half as they leave? Not yet. And, uh, uh, I, would, I would start crying if that's the case. Uh, Alright, uh, take a second. What? What do you think of when you think of what it means to be reformed? Try five words or less. It might even just be one word. Now let me need your help again in a second. Uh, actually, you know what? You don't have to collect those. You can help me with this in a second. You can take those. Just stick these up on like the non Alright, and then we're going to move around just a little bit. Uh, there's going to be three pieces of paper around here. Uh, two up here. Um, so two up here, one uh, back there. Uh, we're going to call this uh, like pick a projector and all that. doctrine, like teachings, uh, things that someone might believe. Um, this we're going to talk, we're going to use the word piety. It's kind of an old word, but things like, like spiritual disciplines type stuff. Um, and then back here, We need to talk about kind of uh, engagement with. <coughs> uh, all right, so here's our uh, assignment. There's no judgment in this. Uh, let's go 
we're going to take the sticky notes, we're going to pass them to the sides. People, other folks here, you don't have to... Uh, let's, you know what, let's do this. Never mind, let's not do that. Let's, we're gonna, everyone's going to stand up and move around. Take your own sticky note. Based on what you wrote, you're going to stick it on either like stuff that someone might believe, like a certain thing about theology. Uh, you might put it over here. Or piety, like certain things that Reformed Christians might like do in worship, or prayer, or spiritual formation, those types of things. And then in the back... Uh, maybe your sticky note might have more about like how reformed Christians might engage the world. Does that make sense? Kind of. Okay. So we're gonna try to categorize uh, where we put our sticky notes. And if you're not sure, take a guess. Sunday evening service. It's all yours. Uh, and so uh, I preached or taught, I exhorted would be the technical term for this, uh, exhorted on uh, perseverance of the saints. And again, I, the saints in that church persevered. Uh, uh, so we have this. We have uh, ways of interpreting, interpreting the scriptures, and you do have here living out the Bible, so it could be like engagement. Uh, callings, uh, tulips up here again, all things to God's glory, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, those types of things. Um, uh, here we have all things uh, belong to God. Applying the gospel to new tech, uh, new context. Reform is always transformed every square inch. Uh, Kuiper's famous phrase. Uh, reform means engagements, transformation, uh, and uh, sin, salvation, service. 
so what we've received, we go out and leave with. Uh, so I just want to acknowledge the fact that I think we're heavy here. I think we've, uh, particular reform traditions, do that well, engagement with the world. I do think it's striking that that's virtually empty. Um, and that's troublesome to me. Um, that, man, how do we do this and do that if we're not attending to these things? Uh, then I think it becomes poisonous. Uh, if we're not being, like, if we want to transform the world, but our souls aren't being transformed, yikes. Uh, that's scary business. Then the moment would be like in a game of power play. Uh, if we're not willing to be submitting to the work of the Holy Spirit for me in our life. It's not nearly as glamorous to talk about. Uh, and by simply that the fact is not out there doesn't mean that people aren't doing it. It's just, that's not what comes to mind. Alright. Um, um, So, doctrinalist, pietist, uh, transformation, that's the more technical term for these. Uh, another way to think about reforms. Can I ask a question? Where did those yeah. three, I've heard that expressed before, where did those come from? Or where's that, like, where, where these first starting? That's idea? a great question. I don't know. Uh, I first came across it, and I think, Caleb, you had it up earlier. There's a document that came out, I don't know, 90-ish, 90s? Uh, from the Christian Reform tradition, um, and I think the question, the title is, "What does it mean to be reformed?" And they kind of highlight these things. I would say, again, speaking out in my tradition, and again, it's not universalized, that people like Abraham Kuyper do these things pretty well. Like they do, they talk theology. He has some wonderful devotional books. Um, talks pretty heavily about piety, and he obviously talks about engagement. Um, I should also name as well, like in terms of truth telling, I told my family story. Then we need, need to be truthful about our traditions. Kuiper, awesome, fantastic. He just messed up things. Uh, the ways in which he talked about race um, was pretty grotesque. Uh, uh, his, the, his backing, uh, kind of the, the undergirding of South African apartheid. Uh, we need like vote for people like myself who is in that tradition. We need to own that. Say this is part of the tradition that I'm in. We need to name those things, confess those things, lament those things, and repent. Uh, turn around. See, if I'm going to use Kuiper, if I want to use Kuiper, I need to make sure that there's a repentance in that tradition. Like, things can't do, can't be doing the same things that we did in the past. Uh, all right. We use this quiz. Natalie, you might remember this. Do you remember doing this quiz? Tell me yes, because you remember everything we do in class. Uh, 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 there's a New York Times quiz. You should look it up. It's called, uh, yeah, how you all use and you guys talk. There's 25 questions. Uh, Christina Edmondson actually kind of hinted at that. She talked about y'all. Uh, you take 25 questions, like how would you address a, address a group of two or more people, and they give you a list of things. Um, so you pick which one you do. You go through 25 questions. And it pinpoints like where you live. Um, so I take I took it last night, um, and my number one is Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, it's usually this is new for me. It's usually kind of right around um, the Chicago area as well. Uh, but Grand Rapids always ranks as number one. Talk about reformed accents. What does it mean to be reformed? We highlight certain things. Other people say the same stuff. Uh, other Christian traditions still speak about, let's say, the sovereignty of God. We emphasize it in this particular way. Uh, other Christian traditions talk about the kingdom of God. We highlight it in a certain way. We accent it. The other thing about this is I didn't realize I had an accent, because I was naive, until I moved to Southern California. And my students said, are you from Canada? <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm not from Canada. Uh, you talk funny. The uh, problem is, like, if we stay in our silos, we assume that this is just what 
Christianity is or the Reformed tradition is. We need to rub shoulders with other folks, other parts of the world, other Christian traditions, other theological traditions, other racial and ethnic um, uh, traditions of the church. To learn from them. Like, I still say you guys, but I hate it that I say you guys. Uh, I hate that phrase now. So I'm trying to learn y'all because I actually really like it. Uh, and I think it gets at something. There's an endearment that actually Evans had talked about. So it's something I want to learn from a different accent and tradition. Same thing for theology. There are things I want to learn from other traditions and incorporate into my uh, understanding of faith. All right. Accents, I mean, if you hang out with folks long enough, you start to talk like them. And so here's some of my people I like to hang out with. Uh, Calvin, Bobbing, uh, Piper, uh, someone. So here's talking about like learning from a different perspective. Alan Bosick from uh, South Africa, Black and Reformed, fantastic. Uh, Richard Mao, like to hang out with Richard Mao a lot. Uh, I wish I could actually hang out with him. Uh, but I read his stuff. The more we read these things, we have these accents that shape us. All right. Uh, one Reformed tradition is a German reform tradition. This is Karl Barth. Um, contextualizing. It's in the 20th century. The rise of Nazism in, in Germany. The church is not speaking out against it. It's going along with it. And so he's part of what's called the Confessing Church. Um, a resistance movement against Nazism. Uh, he says this in 1963, looking back in his career, he's retired now, and he says when he was a young teacher, he would tell his uh, young pastors this advice. Take your Bible, take your newspaper, and read both. Bible in one hand, newspaper in the other. Interpret newspapers from your Bible. Um, what he's getting at here is a le- the language that I think we're familiar with of, of worldview. Right? We want to look at the world through the lens of Scripture. That's something that the Reformed tradition has typically done really well. We've talked about that. It's a gift from one our Reformed tradition to kind of a broader church, I think. Here's the problem. That language has gotten picked up, and I think we've missed... I'm going to make a generic statement. I think we misuse worldview these days. Here's an example. And I don't mean to bash. Can you read that okay? I googled Christian worldview, uh, and like the first website came out, it's a major organization, do some good things. Uh, but this is what they say about worldview. Here's, I think, one of the gifts the Reformed tradition has given to the church, and this is now what it means in like mainstream thinking. Do you have a biblical worldview? Answer the following questions, and they're all like yes or no questions, uh, based on claims found in the Bible in which George Barna used in a survey. Do you do absolute moral truths exist? Yes or no? Uh, is absolute truth defined by the Bible? Yes or no? Did Jesus Christ live a sinless life? Yes or no? On and on and on. Uh, like, it seems like we've taken something so rich, so beautiful, and we've narrowed it down to what, two, four, six, eight yes or no questions. And if you answer yes to these, you have a biblical worldview. Congratulations. And if you answer no, you don't. And so the rest of the article talks about, I think it's 4% of Americans, as the survey says, has a biblical worldview. If you did have a biblical worldview, you would know that Romans 13 tells you to research your voters carefully and vote accordingly. That's the rest of the article. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that's what like Kuiper and Bobbink and Cowan are trying to get at with this worldview. Uh, so what what do we mean then by reformed worldview? Perhaps C.S. Lewis, who's not reformed, uh, could help us. He has a meditate uh, an essay called "A Meditation in a Tool Shed," and in it he says uh, he was in a tool shed. He was in a dark corner of his tool shed. And he noticed that there was a shaft of light coming down from a crack in the door uh, from the outside. And so he could see 
a shaft of light coming through, and in it you could see all this kind of dust particles uh, spinning around. And he says, from outside in that dark corner of the, of the tool shed, I could see that light, and I could identify it, I could name it, I could say that's light. Um, I could see dust particles, like, I'm looking at the light. And I think a lot of times we think about doctrines and theologies like we're in the dark corner of a tool shed and we're on the outside looking at it and saying, yep, that's predestination, or that's tulip, or that's covenants, or whatever it happens to be. But then Lewis says, but it's far richer to step into the light and then to look along that shaft of light. And now as you look along that shaft of light, you're looking actually outside of the leaves outside. You can see the birds flying by. You can see the clouds moving by. And it's filled with wonder and beauty. And I think there's this difference between looking at, like we can stand outside and just kind of identify certain things and say, uh, look, I have a Christian worldview. I have a Reformed worldview because I answered yes or no to these particular questions. Versus stepping into the lights and looking along that light and now seeing the world in all its beauty and goodness and its richness. It's a, for me, that's a helpful change of thinking about worldview. Looking at certain doctrines or looking along them and through them, seeing the world from that perspective. Uh, Richard Mao, who I said I, I really like, um, in a book that he, it's called All That God Cares About, he's acknowledging this as well. He says, look, we think about that like, we possess a worldview. Like we have a worldview. And you can put it like in your back pocket and say, Based on my worldview, I should do X, Y, and Z. And he says, no, 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 we need to go from noun to gerund. We need to be worldviewing, seeing the world through this. It's, a, it's an activity, it's a process. It's not static. It's not that you get answered yes to eight questions. It's this process in which we view and think about the world. And to connect it to Christina Evans' talk, if we're having a truly biblical and reform worldview, I think. This is this is about love. Uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Like, if our worldview is not leading us into love, like the most famous verse in the Bible, for God loved the world. They did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to redeem the world. If our worldview is one that leads us to like always judging the world, are we sharing the worldview of Jesus, who loves the world so much? Well, that doesn't mean that there's not critique, there's not discernment, of course, but it should always be one rooted in love. For God so loved the world, he didn't come to condemn it. Uh, so on your handout, I think I talk about weapon uh, or wonder. I mean, I read the news, I listen to pundits, and I think, man, when we talk about worldview, it's usually the weapon. Like, they've got a wor- I've got a worldview, you've got a, a bad worldview, I win the argument. I don't think that's what worldview is meant for, to, to, to use as a weapon. Or to curse other people, like to say they're wrong. Rather, it should be about curiosity. All right, keep moving, sorry. You guys seen this picture before? I love this. Oh, yeah. My eyes drawn towards the front, right? Comes up the aisle uh, in the, the altar up front, this grand cathedral. But then, as the more I look at it, I look at uh, the church or the buildings. The ch- sorry, the, the church pews are actually buildings, and they're running up and down are the cars. It's a mix of the world and the church, right? It's kind of optical illusion. They blend into each other. Uh, there's an assignment I give to some of my students in which we talk about reformed vocabulary terms, things like shalom, things like sovereignty of God, things like depravity, sin. Uh, it used to be years ago, we just like, here's the terms, here's the definitions, memorize them, take a quiz on it, off we go. Uh, like, well, that's not worldview. That's checking things off the list. Uh, so now the assignment is take these terms, uh, go read a news story. I don't care what news story it is. Read a news story. Talk to somebody about it. 
because it's imitational, it's conversational. And then talk about how that new story connects to these vocab terms. How does it illustrate shalom, or brokenness of shalom, or depravity, or the kingdom of God? Uh, it's a way to have not just worldview as like a checklist, but a worldview as a way to actually live and engage and see the world. Yes, good question. Yep, for sure. Um, just referencing back to your assignment there, yep. how is it that you encourage your kids how to search out specific assignments for that? Is there a certain site for, you for, use? Uh, for which news stories mean? Yeah, your words in the world assignment. Yep. Uh, with your words. That so I so we this is my part of my freshman class. So it's uh, their first Bible class in high school. So we start with like here are twelve key terms that you're going to use in this class, and we're going to use them all throughout high school that you should be familiar with. And some of them are brand new um, words and concepts for folks, others that have heard this for a long time. So we have a list of 12 that we as a Bible department have said, here's what it means, like key reformed accent words that we're going to use in our Bible classes, and we get used throughout uh, our curriculum as well. So that's been a process that we've looked at. So again, it's things like uh, Shalom, Kingdom of God, sovereignty of God, depravity, discernment, justification. So key kind of theological concepts. We have <coughs> definitions that they do need to, need to know. But then we say it's not just a matter of knowing those definitions. We want you to look alongside them, right? Step into the light. Step into that shaft of light and look at the world through that. Uh, how does that lead us into seeing whatever's going on. I just grabbed that from this last night. So So then you just have them research different stories that yep. might and my, my only qualification is that it, sh- it can't be about sports or couldn't be about the entertainment industry just because that's what everyone would gravitate toward. As <laughs> uh, say if it's about sports or entertainment and is about something bigger than sports or entertainment. So you want to talk about women's soccer, great, don't tell me the score. Tell me about like the bigger story about uh, equality of pain. Like that's a sports story. That's about something bigger. Um, other than that, uh, I give them, I give them the websites. Actually, I do tell them which websites they can use and what they can't use. Uh, and I show them the media bias um, chart, odd Fontes media. And so I say, go to the top of that chart. Um, that's actually doing reporting and not just like regurgitating news. That can either lean to the left or to the right. Uh, so Reuters, AP News, uh, kind of the key one of the top of the chart. But beyond that, I could care less. Hey, the world's a big place. I don't, you're going to read news someplace. Uh, engage it. Thank you. Yep. Uh, here's a quick quote from Alan Cherry, um, a wonderful book by the Renewing of Your Minds on the Purpose of Theology. She says, doctrine has been severed from the hands and feet of the eyes and ears. Uh, the assumption of theology, or academic theology, has been that doctrine is a theory of Christian belief. It's just the stuff over here, the things that we do, or things that we believe. And she says, doctrine and practice are so separated that the idea of practicing or living out Christian doctrine seems like an oxymoron. Like, how would you live out to it? You don't live out to it. You believe to it. Or how do you live out sovereignty of God? You believe sovereignty of God. No, we live these things out. Uh, Rich Mount. We'll come back to Rich in a second. So, here's a quick example from the hybrid catechism. Question answer one. What's your only comfort in life and in death? They are not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death. My faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, and he goes on. My hunch is if we grew up with this at all, which uh, my church uh, didn't, uh, I didn't learn this until I was in college. I'm like, I wanted to know that in high school. Uh, but if we did learn it, here's my hunch where you learned it in a church basement someplace. <laughs> How helpful is that in a church basement? Far more helpful out here in the city streets. Uh, so here's an assignment I do Natalie will do this eventually uh, 
would actually take, we get on a bus, we go downtown Grand Rapids. <clears throat> this is the New Testament class, we actually don't do the catechism. Uh, but I get in the summer on the mountain. Because here's where we usually read the Bible. At church, at home, or in a classroom. At church, the text is a religious text. At school, it's an academic text. At home, it's a private text. Where do we not read the Bible? Where we just do life. I don't think the Bible actually is a religious text in that way. It's a text for life. It's how we're supposed to live. So it's called dislocated, like we dislocate where we read the Bible, exegesis. Dislocated exegesis. Go someplace where you don't normally read the Bible and read the Bible. So we sit in front of a bank. Some students will go in front of a bank and they read the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor. Well, they won't care. Well, I was sitting in front of a bank. Reshape how I think about blessed or some of the students would be on Division Street in Grand Rapids, which is uh, kind of a center for homeless population in Grand Rapids. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice and righteousness. Or they will be How does what you're looking at shape how you read the text? Because it's not in the class anymore, it's not in the home, but it's actually where real people live. Um, changes how we think about it. What if we did the same thing with catechism? Dislo- dislocated catechesis. Uh, let's, catech- let's teach the catechism, but actually where rubber meets the road. So, what's your only comfort in life and in death? That I'm not my own, but belong, body and soul, and life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Like, let's go read that in the scoop corner. Um, not to other people like evangelizing, uh, but to ourselves. What might that mean? I typically heard this at funerals. It's a fine place to go. But we hear it when there's a national tragedy um, or when there's conversations about, uh, well, okay. It belongs body and soul. Like I belong, my, my body belongs, not to me, but to Jesus Christ. And so, folks are going to have an argument about like, my body, my choice. Does this talk to that language at all? Maybe. Whose body is it? I don't know. Well, I do know. It's, um, <laughs> uh, or other folks are like, uh, don't try to need my personal rights, my personal responsibility. <coughs> I don't know what kind of thing to say. My body, or my, my right, my personality, my, my, my personal rights don't try on me? Is it like, does that say anything to that? In life. In life? And that, yeah, not just here. But like right now. I don't know who said that. Uh, but like, not just later, but like right now. Not just my comfort in life, my comfort in death is when I die, I go to heaven. But like right now, this is, should speak to me. And not just to me, but to other people. Not just about people's souls, but about their bodies. I meant in terms of belonging. That don't tread on my rights. You know, it's not it's not my life. To live is Christ, right? So it's it's belonging belonging my rights. I'm a slave to Christ. My yep. my, my rights are we can like hold baptism theology, like if we're connected now to Christ, I'm actually connected to all of you too. Um, so if someone else is being hurt, I'm being hurt too because I'm united to Christ and Christ's body. Mm-hmm. Alright, cool, that's a long one. We're not going to do that. Um, you have on your handout, I think, a few others. Uh, I didn't put them on the screen. But uh, Q&A on the hybrid catechism 2. Um, Caleb, can you read the second one? Do you have it up there? Uh, hybrid catechism 2. I think it's two. Five. Five? Yep. Can you live up to all of this perfectly? No, I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. Oh, what if you read that in the city street? Uh, What do I know about myself? My natural tendency is to hate God and to hate my neighbor. We don't want to talk that way. But I actually think it's really good news to own that. To say my natural tendency, of course... I'm guilty of various sins against my brother. 
the catechism says I have a natural tendency to hate my neighbor. I shouldn't be surprised by that then. So whether it's prejudice, bias in some way, whether it's racism, like I think this speaks to that. We shouldn't be surprised by these things. It's right in our confessions. Do we let that actually speak to us? All right, there's long ones. There's other ones here about like don't murder, uh, all that kind of stuff. Uh, this is from the Westminster Catechism. I didn't put it on your hand up there, ran out of space. But what's the sixth commandment? Don't kill. What does that mean? Well, duties required in the sixth commandment are care- this is so the Dutch have a tradition. The 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 English the the, the Presbyterians have like they get really specific things. That's their tradition. Yep. Uh, careful studies. Lawful endeavors to preserve the life of others and other ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away the life of anyone. Now let's just stop and think about like, all right, so I didn't kill anybody, but now I need to pay careful attention to any system that might harm other people. Does that speak to 2021? Like any system that might cause harm to anyone else is required of me in the Ten Commandments. So, is reform relevant? I think if we let it be, if we actually let it speak to our contemporary context, and then it's like down here, like, don't eat too much meat. You see that? Is that what you're seeing? Yeah. Uh, where'd it go? Uh, no. Quiet cheerfulness of spirit. A sober use of meat. Like, don't kill actually means I can't just have as much pork as I want. Uh, or beef. Uh, like, it actually means, like, I need to be careful. Like, there's food justice here. Like, not just killing as much food as I want. But that's not... That sounds kind of progressive in 2021. This is in the 1600s. Do we read our confessions? Do we let it speak to the actual lived reality of our life? Alright. Um, okay. Uh, last point. We talk about theology. Um, and I think, so my, my, I guess my thought here is go back to our confessions go back to our catechism, whatever tradition you have, and read them and say, what might this actually speak to 2021? Does it speak anything to right now on the streets? Um, here's a quote. I don't want to skip this quote. This is Rich Mile. Love him. Uh, this is a book from 1978. So it's not all that relevant. 1978. Called to Holy Worldliness. This is what he says. We need to reflect on the content of our expressions of piety. So the hymns that we sing, the songs that we sing, to see what our utterances implicitly and explicitly commit us to. So, like, we say the confessions. Let's actually reread them, and actually, what does that commit us to? I surrender all. Yeah. I surrender all. Uh, I wrote down, I don't know where I put it now, some lines from the hymns that we sang this morning. Um... I don't remember now. Uh, the task is not so much for us to begin saying new things, it's begin to reflect and act on the commitments we have already made in the expression of our own piety, our own hymns, our own prayers that we're already familiar with. Let's go back to the sources of our own traditions and say, what does this speak to right now? And then, there's, yes, we're going to be updating, changing. We need, we need to do that. But we have expressions of our own tradition. All right, last thing is this. Uh, this is a picture of my church uh, sanctuary. Uh, I think when we think about being reformed, we just think about theology, things that we believe. I think we need to think all about our worship and how our reformed worship changes our lives as well. Um, so things like confession. Do we do that in church anymore? Some churches do. A lot of churches don't. My wondering is what, why don't we confess our sins in church anymore? It makes me uncomfortable. Folks might not be drawn in. But confession shapes us. 
to be truth tellers, to own up to our brokenness, our sinfulness. Because we already know that my natural tendency is to hate God and to hate my neighbor, so I shouldn't be surprised to confess it. And if we go to the Reformed, uh, the Westminster Catechism, it says uh, specific sins should be confessed specifically. Like, we shouldn't in our churches just, God, forgive us the sins that we've committed. Blah, blah, blah. What specific sins have we committed in people? Let's confess those specifically. How might that change us if we actually got in the custom of just being truth tellers for our own brokenness? And then they're here, God's good news at the end, saying, yeah, I know, you're forgiven. Now go live differently. Might that change us? Uh, prayers of lament. Uh, do we pray prayers of lament? Uh, one theologian says that lament is simply looking long enough at the world so that our hearts are broken and refusing to look away. I don't think we lament enough. Why do we not lament enough? Why do you think it makes us uncomfortable? We want to look away. We want to get our news quickly as we're scrolling through our Twitter feeds. That's why we get my news. But I don't want to look long enough at the hurt of the world and lament it. Because lament says the world's not the way it's supposed to be. God, come fix it. And let's partner with God in the work of redemption. How about the Lord's Supper, the table? A community that would come together I wish weekly. Ah, oh, I wish weekly. Uh, my church is not reformed enough. Calvin says weekly. <laughs> uh, we do it once a month. It's good. But why not weekly? I just don't get it. Uh, but if we confess our sin, if we lament of the brokenness, the Lord's Supper at the end of the service says, and we hope for the day when Christ makes all things new and we're gathered around a table as a community, from all different socioeconomic backgrounds, all different racial and ethnic backgrounds, around the table proclaiming that Christ has begun the work of making all things new. Might that shape us in how we live our lives? Not just the theology, but the practices. That if this is what's happening now, we go send out the people who've been fed on the resurrected Christ, and go live as resurrected people in this world. Seeking to not build God's kingdom, point towards God's kingdom and Christ's vision of Alright. Thanks. Um, questions I should ask. Uh, as Natalie can attest in the back, I talk too much. Yeah. Uh, about a hundred years ago when I was in high school, <laughs> the Bible program at Bailey's Allen Christian was Reformed Doctrine and Church History. Yeah. And was taught by an ordained pastor. Yep. Um, maybe it's time to go back to those. I'm an ordained pastor. <laughs> <laughs> a time when, when I, I, I think 95% of the kids would be from the Christian point. Yeah, so, yeah, and that's one area that we didn't even tap into. So, my school context is this school context, right? Uh, we have 170 different churches represented. Um, of those, a reformed background is the minority. Right? So it's still like, Christian reform is still like the single most denomination represented. But it's by far the minority, uh, like, it doesn't make up the majority of churches. But we're still influenced by Right, and so what I'm trying to navigate and figure out, like, I love everything else, but this is what it's shaped me. One of the key points, I think, is actualizing my background. Uh, and say, look, our school speaks for this tradition. Uh, this is a tradition I'm raised in. But what I think I want is to recognize that there are a whole bunch of extremes in the Christian tradition that I want to learn from as well, that I think all of our students need to learn from. Um, and I think the danger is that I universalize my Christian tradition as the Christian tradition, which now the majority of my students are going to come in and say, that's not my tradition. Remember Banner of Scott? Doesn't affect me. I want to contextualize mine. Say it's one I really, really like. I wouldn't teach from it otherwise. But I think there's also a humility that I need to. to like, I want to listen. I want to learn from others. Um, 
So I want to say yes and. Like I actually do think we should teach more. But like, yeah, like in my own church background, like I wish my kids were in seventh grade, fifth grade. Like I wish they were already starting to memorize the catechism. I do wish that. So stuff that we're here to help. So a yes, let's dig in. But yes, it's also explore the rich tradition. That'll be my my take. You're welcome to go because I've left you. I've taken you. <laughs>